Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. It's not a commercial space. Everyone is welcome. And so I think in a society that really cares about inclusivity, it's going to become an important community home base. What power can an ordinary building hold? In today's show, we visit a few normally humdrum city fixtures that are having big effects on their communities. From a library in Indiana helping to revive its city's downtown district to a historic bank in Vienna exploring the virtues of rethinking the old space for a new purpose. And we find out how the architecture of Argentina's financial institutions shape and are shaped by their citizens' relationship with money. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today with a trip to the library. While this city staple may have once evoked images of endless shelves packed tight with old spy stories and steamy romance novels, the role that a library plays in a city has slowly but surely changed over the decades. By responding to community needs, libraries have evolved in both their design and their offerings, and they're proving that they can be even a catalyst in reviving a struggling city centre too. That's certainly the case in South Bend, Indiana, a city that 10 years ago was dubbed as dying by the publication Newsweek. A reimagining of the city's library from the architects at New York-based firm Ramsa has seen new facilities, both indoors and out, which have reinvigorated residents and encouraged visitors back through its doors. To explore the project, I am now joined by Melissa Del Vecchio, who's a partner at Ramsa. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me. Now, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with South Bend, could you first just paint a picture of the city and what its needs were when you became involved? South Bend is a small, medium-sized city in northern Indiana. It's about an hour and a half outside of Chicago. And in its heyday, it was a big industrial powerhouse. It was known as the home of Studebaker and a lot of other big industries. And then like many cities of its ilk, saw quite a bit of decline in the 1960s as that industry closed or moved elsewhere. The other interesting thing about South Bend, Indiana, is it is the home to the University of Notre Dame, which is one of the U.S.'s premier Catholic universities. And the downtown South Bend and the university campus are actually not that far apart. I'm actually a graduate of the University of Notre Dame. And curiously, when I was there in school, we almost never interacted or went to downtown South Bend. There wasn't much there to do, but it's really only about two miles away. And interestingly, in the last 20 years or so since I've been out of school, South Bend has seen a huge revitalization of people living downtown and businesses coming back to downtown, largely due to the mayoralty of Pete Buttigieg, who's our current transportation secretary here in the U.S. and ran for president in 2020. And he was a really fantastic mayor for South Bend. And so under his mayoralty, there was a lot of positive development in South Bend. And at the same time, the university started to take on some of its own development projects, building a bit of a college town adjacent to campus, reviving some residential neighborhoods nearby campus for faculty housing. And the combination of those two things have actually drawn the university and the downtown of South Bend 
much closer together. So now what felt like a two mile gap before is quickly shrinking and I think is setting up the city and the university for some interesting developments in the future. Now, in the midst of all this sits this library, South Bend Main Library. And it sounds a bit like the rest of the city then. It needed its moment to reboot, be reimagined. And this is where they call in your company, they call in Ramza to look at the library and what could be done. So tell us what that call was and what the idea was when you took that call. So the city of South Bend has a long history of having a very strong public library presence. The first public library building there was built in 1896 on the very same site where we just recently completed our work. And that building was kind of red sandstone Romanesque thing that they called the castle. And then over time on that site, the library grew substantially. So in the 1960s, they actually demolished the castle, sadly, but replaced it with a modern, more flexible open stack library like was being built in many cities at that time. And then in 1988, it saw yet another renovation where that 1960s building was actually encased in a much larger shell for expansion. But the libraries had a presence on this particular site between Main Street and Michigan Street since the 1890s. So it was really a wonderful opportunity for us to look at ways to expand its urban presence and expand the resources that it could offer the community. Because when we talk about libraries, you know, I'm somebody who still thinks in my mind of rows and rows of books, but actually that isn't what a library does these days in most cities. It's a community resource. It's probably more digital than print. It does many, many things. Just before we describe the project that you've delivered for the city, tell me, what is a library these days? Well, it's interesting that you say that it's changing and becoming more of a community presence because I think public libraries always were that thing. Of course, they've changed a little bit over time. But, you know, as opposed to if you think about university libraries, much more often are, you know, repositories of important historical collections, let's say. They're also places for students to study, but a lot of their role is to store important archives. Whereas public libraries have always had more of a presence in the community, more about popular materials, more about lifelong learning, education of the community, places to go. And the Carnegie Library here in the U.S. was really important in the early 1900s. Andrew Carnegie donated the money for thousands of public libraries across the U.S. And many of those were really community lifelong learning centers, even back then, one of them in Braddock, Pennsylvania, actually had amenities like a swimming pool and public baths and a bowling alley and an art gallery and a billiards room. So there have always been a place of both learning and entertainment and places for the community to come together. What's really changed since the early 1950s, I guess, when public libraries were being built as these accessible open stack places, but largely, as you say, centered around books, is the integration of technology. But when you think about it, that's not really all that different. It's always been a place where people could come to borrow things that were expensive to buy and own on their own or to use things that were expensive to buy and own on their own. And now technology has really become more and more that thing. So the interesting shift from the 1990s was we were spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to build in big pieces of immovable technology. And now the technology has all become small, more like books that you can move and carry around with you. And so, you know, now it's being integrated in a slightly different way. But one of the big 
goals of this building was to actually bring those pieces of technology to the community. So not, not only books and popular materials, but a big technology space where people can come in and borrow you know, high quality digital cameras and laptops and learn how to use sophisticated photo editing software or much like we're doing today, rent out a room to record a podcast or you know, have a meeting with colleagues if they work from home, but they need to have a place to meet. So it's becoming much more of a community resource on a larger level. And it's a transformation we see here in the UK as well. I mean, interestingly, of course, because, you know, Mr. Carnegie was Scots-born. Actually, when you even go around here in London, you see many libraries where the name Carnegie sits above the front door. But tell us, you go into this building. It's a, a building in need of some love. What have you done there to the library? How, how have you adapted it? The library was in good shape, the existing building, but it needed a substantial refresh different little miniature renovations had happened in places over time and it just didn't feel like it had a cohesive presence or center to it. So what we did in the existing building, we actually didn't renovate the whole thing, but we renovated the bulk of the public areas to expand the children's section, create a teen space, reinvigorate spaces for popular materials and the computer labs, and really just refresh everything that was in there. And one of the main really important changes that we made to that building actually, which is subtle, but really important is that in the 1988 renovation, a lot of the windows that they put in were glass block. They didn't want people to see from the city sidewalk into the library. And they didn't want people looking from the library out to the city sidewalk for some reason. And we were able to take all of those out and replace them with big, beautiful glass windows. And that now makes it possible to see all the way through the library from one side to the other. So we opened up the interior, we added these windows, and now there really is a presence of indoor-outdoor sense of space and not only good natural light, but actually views to the outside, which is really important, and views to the inside. So people who are walking on the city streets are getting a sense of what the wonderful resources are that are inside. And then the other piece that we did was to add on a component that we call the Community Learning Center. And that is a sort of L-shaped addition that we put on the existing library. The Technology Center is in one part of the L and the Community Learning Center makes up the part that defines the street edge on the opposite block. So the original library was on Main Street, the Community Learning Center is on Michigan Street. And it really acts as a draw. Michigan Street is a reviving community commercial hub. And this really draws people down to the end of that commercial area into a public resource at the end. And the Community Learning Center includes a large auditorium for 250 people. It includes a large flat floor space that is divisible into multiple rooms, but can be used for larger events. And it includes a series of classrooms and meeting rooms up above as well as offices for something called the Community Foundation of St. Joseph County, which was instrumental in raising money for this whole organization and made an expansion as ambitious as the Community Learning Center possible. Now, Melissa, tell me, Newsweek once dubbed this a dying city. What's been the impact of your work? Have the locals adopted it? Are we seeing more people rush to get their library cards? Yeah, so it's interesting. We were there on the day that it opened, And, you know, I think a couple thousand people came the day of the opening. I think they get a thousand visitors a day. It is a thriving place downtown. And I think 
Obviously, we were planning the design before the pandemic, but the librarians and our clients had a very forward-thinking mindset. They were already thinking about people remote working or the idea of entrepreneurship and startups in the city, and they were wanting to create a place where those people could go and really expand the library audience to people who are looking for a place to work and to meet and to start new things. And they didn't know exactly how that would happen. They did a lot of engagement with the community to hear about you know, what they wanted. And they followed some of those guidelines, but it was very much a kind of, if you build it, they will come situation. And also the, you know, the pandemic, of course, accelerated a lot of these movements that they were already planning for. So I'd say the spaces have been really incredibly well utilized. The community has even come up with surprising things that the library didn't expect. You know, it's really become a, a heart of the downtown. Melissa, fascinating, because I think that what's interesting is, you know, that perhaps more in the US than anywhere else, but certainly here in Europe as well, we're seeing this this funny moment where lots of people started working at home and then they didn't want to go back to the office and then maybe they wondered about co-working spaces and lots of people are still not quite sure where to perch during the day, where their their place of community is, where they can find conversation and of eye connection that doesn't leave them feeling remote in the worst senses of that word. But just tell me, when you speak to other cities or when you think about other urban cities facing this question about what is the future of work and play and how we come together as community? Do you think the library is a potential solution for other cities as well? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's a place that's open to everyone. You know, it's a resource that we take the time to build, to bring communities together. It's not a commercial space. Everyone is welcome. And so I think in a society that really cares about inclusivity, it's going to become an important community home base, let's say, everywhere. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. It's a fascinating project and a good reminder that actually many of the assets you need to fix your city and change your city may be sitting right in front of your eyes if you only know where to look. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us here on The Urbanist. We turn now to another regular feature of the central city, the bank. Otto Wagner is considered as one of Austria's most important architects, and his postal savings bank on the eastern sweep of Vienna's Ringstrasse is his crowning achievement. Built between 1904 and 1912, it used to be the headquarters of a novel banking system that offered financial services using the extended network of the Austro-Hungarian postal system. But today, it has a new function and new residents. Monocle's Alexei Korolyov sent us this report from Vienna. I'm standing in front of Otto Wagner's Postal Savings Bank, and it's difficult not to be impressed. Its main facade alone, with its shimmering granite and marble slabs, is a masterpiece. What is amazing is the surface of the building, which was clad with panels, and actually in this way for the first time. Um, That's Richard Kordiowski. He is a historian of architecture at the Austrian Academy of Sciences, and he'll soon be calling this place home. It used to be a postal savings bank, an absolutely fascinating institution, and it will be used by the Academy of Sciences. We will move into the third floor, our department, uh, in the next five months (laughs) or so. 
the next thing is what is very famous about the building is the bolt decoration because these slabs are not just glued to the facade as they actually are but they are additionally they are fixed with bolts they're bolted to the facade wow. they are bolted to the facade this is actually a technique which already the ancient romans used but you would never see the metal elements which hold these marble slabs in position in ancient Roman architecture. Here, the bolts are clearly visible to signal what kind of construction this building consists of. Otto Wagner was a fervent believer in the idea of the Gesamtkunstwerk, or total work of art, and he applied it inside the building too. All right, and now we are in the cash hall. Yes, cash hall. Like a big hall in a very traditional architectural type, which is the basilica, coming from ancient times, the Roman basilicas. However, how he interprets this traditional form is again very modern. Usually, a basilica, the, the naves of a basilica are divided by columns or arcades. We do find something similar here. It's uh, these pillars. Very thin ones. Very thin ones, because they are of iron, I suppose, but again clad uh, with aluminium. And then there is a kind of architrave on which the glass surface of the whole, um, of the whole ceiling rests. The Austrian Academy of Sciences is not the only institution moving in here. The central hall is now being used by Vienna's University of Applied Arts, or Angewandte for short. My name is Elisabeth Falkensteiner and I'm the co-director of the Angewandte Interdisciplinary Lab in Vienna. So we are in the middle of the Kaschia Hall. It was uh, used uh, as a bank before, uh, before the Angewandte and other institutions or the science institution moved into the building. And uh, we are turning the Kaschia Hall into a place for exchange and also a cafe. We have excellent um, coffee here and uh, some cakes and also lunch. And we do... Uh, um, performances here, talks, lectures, and we want to enhance and facilitate the interdisciplinary discourse here at the Kasia Hall. Is there anything special about this building that uh, appealed to the Angewandte? I mean, was there even a choice? Uh, what do you mean by choice? Taking Maybe moving move somewhere else, uh, create this somewhere else. Um, I mean, the Kasia Hall is a really, really beautiful hall because the ceiling is of, of glass, so it's it's like being in a place of transition somehow, like it reminds me of a um, railway train station in a way. Yeah, it's a very beautiful surrounding, but of course it's also um, difficult in terms of, of working there because um, if you do a lecture there or talk there, like the hall is, comes with a, long of, with a lot of problems, but in the end um, the atmosphere is very nice. Mm. Does it actually matter where you are, where your office is for your work? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Of course it matters. I mean, atmosphere and, the, and the architecture has an impact on your work, on exhibitions, on, I don't know, on a lot of things. What, what we can say, we're very happy to, to use this space now in another way and to, to rebuild it and reformulate it. Also, the public can enter this building because it could also have been in private hands. So that's a very beautiful thing to be open also for the public. There is a famous Otto Wagner quote. What's impractical can never be beautiful. This building's new role is different from its original one. 
but it's still a place of exchange, though this time not of mail and money, but of ideas and knowledge. And this means that it remains practical and beautiful, just as Otto Wagner would have wanted. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Lastly today, we remain in finance in Buenos Aires. Argentina's economy has been tumultuous for decades, and as a result, the relationship that citizens have with their pesos is a cautious one. But can the way that financial institutions look influence the way those who use them feel about what's in their wallet? Can the right design encourage savings out from beneath the mattresses and back into bank accounts? Lucinda Elliott took a tour of Buenos Aires' financial district to find out more. For several generations, Argentina has been mired in financial difficulties, successive currency crises, ballooning debts and bouts of hyperinflation. The South American nation's economic outlook in 2023 is far from bright, with inflation set to pass 100% this year. New estimates suggest that up to 2.6 billion US dollars have fallen outside the formal banking system, kept in homes or under mattresses, as savers become increasingly sceptical of banks and the value of the peso currency. That figure is up 50% in five years, according to Argentina's Statistics Institute. Local architects have been looking into how the physical structure of these financial institutions has influenced how Argentines feel about their banking system and how the design of buildings in Buenos Aires, the capital, has possibly contributed to this deep mistrust. On an overcast afternoon, I met up with design duo Juan Campanini and Josefina Sposito in the city's main square. They recently completed a project with Canada's Centre for Architecture on the subject of money. We're here in Plaza de Mayo, standing in front of uh, the National Bank. We are going to walk around. Uh, Here there are some... We call it the La City Porteña, where all the headquarters of the most important banks are. So we Juan begins at the doors of the National Bank of Argentina that sits opposite the presidential palace, with two imposing columns out front. It has a very impressive scale, like almost out of scale. It doesn't relate with humans at all. And it's interesting with when these doors are open because you see like the interior coming out to the city. The ground floor of the bank, it works like an extension of the city in a way. It's like very, uh, when it's open, no? Here, Juan, what we've got, we've got the the government palace, the famous Rose Palace. Yes. And then to the right, we've got the finance ministry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, just on that side. Yes, and Plaza de Mayo is like the symbolic center of the city, no? It's like the m- most important square of the city. And it's where people come to protest. So, Josefina, tell me a bit about that. So, people come here regularly to protest. How does that kind of fit in with how they feel about the banking system, the distance that they might feel towards this quite impressive building? Well, that's very interesting because the main avenues and also this main square of the city, Plaza de Mayo, we have all the governance palace and the main banks and ministries. So not only for manifestations, but also to celebrate and uh, every important uh, date. We come here also when some presidents died. We come here too also for 
for we had like a long history of problems with banks and uh, economical problems so also it's the place where we come to manifest ourselves and uh, try to like ask for justice or also to have our money, money back, back. <laughs> we can say that way and these doors these huge doors become like a point of reference for people to meet and to raise their voice two decades ago In December 2001, this entire area of the city was rife with street protests and riots. Argentina underwent the biggest banking crisis in living memory. Overnight, savers were restricted from withdrawing their money under a government program called the Coralito. The unrest brought about the resignation of then-president Fernando de la Rúa, who escaped in a helicopter. It's a period that's left a lasting mark on Argentines, Josefina explained. For our generation, I was born in 1991, so I was 10 years old. But the atmosphere was very, very heavy in that uh, that time. We grew up not believing in banks or not feeling safe, leaving our our money in these like mysterious places. Like that's also what happened in 2001 was that before that, uh, one peso, one Argentinian peso, was one dollar. So when the crisis exploded, banks stayed with the money of the people and also they transformed it to pesos. So you had uh, like $10,000 and now you had 10,000 pesos and the inflation ate your money in a way. And also since 2001, one peso was not one dollar anymore. So people lost all their savings and it was really, really, really sad and uh, problematic. For architecture, sometimes it's quite good <laughs> because uh, people uh, invest their money in the buildings or in flats, people that can do that. There's not much money like <laughs> around. The situation is, is, is quite terrible right now. And uh, also, we're next to the central bank that is here next to the Bank of America. And there is a big problem of savings with the dollars. And also what is known that there are a lot of dollars around, but that people have it in their, in their houses or somewhere else. So they're trying to attract these dollars. The situation is nothing to do with 2001, but the mistrust is always there. And I think it will take a lot of time. It's not only a problem with banks, but also with having different exchange values, and uh, it's kind of a mess. After 2001, many people now use banks simply to keep safety deposit boxes with valuables and cash, but don't actually use the banking services provided. Getting a business loan or even a mortgage, for example, has become virtually impossible for the average Argentine, given the strains and limits of the system. The role of the bank is almost redundant. Our next stop is on Calle Florida. This pedestrianised street, bustling with shoppers, is perhaps the clearest example of the distance between the formal and informal economy in Argentina, despite being in the heart of the financial district. Alerting passers-by, currency exchangers, who will convert your pesos and dollars at more favourable rates on the black market, shout out to customers. They're known as arbolitos, or little trees, for the leafy green of the dollar bills they swap from unmarked bureau de change offices. While technically illegal, in practice it's very common. And they stand side by side with several banks. 
One of these is the Banco de la Ciudad, that's trying hard to change attitudes through its architecture. It's actually a building from the 19th century, but it suffered a restoration by a group of young architects in the end of the 60s, and they create this like a glass box where people can see how the bank works from the street. It's like a little box that it's uh, like a balcony where you can see all the interior of the bank, that it's something that, especially at that time, like 50 years ago, it has never happened. And then it's all covered with these glass bricks that made a very different space and with very uh, nice qualities. Ciudad Bank is still the exception architecturally, we finished with the imposing Bank of Boston, now Chinese-owned. The entrance of the bank is quite stunning because you have this huge metal door and uh, the door was made in the States and came here by boat. So parts of the buildings were made abroad and brought to, to have an authentic American bank. Now it's the ICBC, but it was the, originally the Bank Boston. Yes, it's a Chinese bank now, and very nice looking. But again, we can't go inside in the main entrance, can we? No, 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 we can't. I think you can never go inside. For Monocle, in Buenos Aires, I'm Lucinda Elliott. Well, that's all for this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to The Urbanist for new episodes every week. And for more from the world of urbanism, why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too? And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Duran Duran with Ordinary World. Thank you for listening, city lovers. But I want-